Hi, uh, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Uh, and uh, as Pastor David said, we are great friends, and I am very grateful that God has put him in my life and has been formative in my faith journey and even being a better husband and a better dad. So thank you for making David who he is. I know those of you who have been a longtime Trinity members have shaped him into the man he is today, so we can take no credit for it whatsoever. Um, like I said, I'm from a competing church down the road, and I'm here taking all the notes. Um, one of the things I've noticed is you got the good Jesus bread, okay? You, we, we have like the old, stale, spongy type of Jesus bread at our church, so I'm taking notes. I'll, t- I'll bring that back to our team over there, but um, like I said, honored to be here and to continue the story of Moses through Exodus in chapter 17, and it's a pretty fun little transition in the, in the, the Exodus narrative as up until this point, um, really the whole story can be almost captured in the three points of Pastor David's message last year or last week, and it was essentially fear not, stand firm, and see the glory of the Lord, a very passive stand and watch God work on their behalf and do nothing about it. This new, this new shift in their journey to God's promise, to the promised land, puts them in a little bit less of an uh, observational role and more of a proactive engagement in their own journey to the promised land. And I think it holds some pretty critical principles for us in our own faith as we're navigating to the promises that God has for us and as we work out our own salvation. Uh, and as your church says, to see the gospel transform every area in our life and every life in our area. I think... Um, it's interesting because this is the very, in this story in Exodus 17, there's the very first battle that the Israelites find themselves in where they actually have to take up arms and they have to put some swords and gear on and go fight an actual enemy. And I think uh, maybe that's why Pastor David invited me to come today because I have some background and experience and some level of expertise in the whole war fighting uh, world. Um, like you said, I spent 13 and a half years in the Marine Corps, um, and this is a picture of me way back in 2005 when I deployed to Afghan or to Iraq as a PFC, lowest bottom of the barrel um, person. And you can see the, the hair on the top of the head is gone, but the combat stash I still got pretty strong. Um, this is a picture of me in Afghanistan as a commissioned officer with the platoon uh, that I led. And um, I got out a couple years later as a captain in the Marine Corps. And so Despite all of that war fighting experience, I think the thing that maybe is even more relevant and the biggest battle I've ever fought is leading this crew right here, my family, and uh, it is pro- I'm probably more comfortable in a, in a war zone with people actively trying to kill me than trying to figure out what to do with my daughter and how to, and if you'd been here after the first service, you would notice that they were, they're pastor's kids, so they're very entitled, so they're up here running around trying to play the, so um, that's been fun, but I have a, a wonderful, um, she's the boss, really, my wife. Like she's a my wonderful commanding officer in the family, Jules, as we kind of lead our kids, our four-year-old, our two-year-old son, and our five-month-old son. And we had a little bit of a parenting thing leading up to this because we know um, we said, hey, Kennedy, we're going to Pastor David, Mr. David's church. And she goes, she was very excited. She was like, wow. And the reason she was so excited is because she's only been here one time. And the one time she was here was during your anniversary party. And during that anniversary party, there was giant bounce houses and slides. And so we said, sorry, kiddo, there's not going to be any bounce houses. And she says, yeah, but are there going to be like little bounce houses? (laughs) And we said, no, sorry. So, um, 
she was disappointed. But now she was, you know, that disappointment turned to joy. She met all of your team and had a wonderful time in Trinity Kids. So, uh, again, I am honored to be here, grateful to be here. But, again, we, it's a pretty interesting, um, fun, unique little story in the transition from the Israelites' journey to the Promised Land as they, as they, as they transition from a fear not, stand firm, see the glory of the Lord to a prepare for battle, go fight, and experience the victory of the Lord mentality as they work out their faith and get to the promised land. So we're going to look at some of those key principles today. So we're in Exodus chapter 17, as Pastor David said, and let's just jump right into the story. Uh, In verses 8 and 9, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. So there you go. Right off the bat is a pretty significant shift in the way the Israelites are approaching their journey to the promised land. Instead of, as the Egyptians approach through the Red Sea, instead of Moses making a declarative statement of saying, fear not, stand firm, watch God work it out, he says, prepare for battle. And who are they battling? Who are the Amalekites? And why are the Amalekites trying to pose essentially an existential threat to the Israelites' journey towards um, the promised land. Well, the Amalekites were uh, naturally the descendants of Amalek, which simply means that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. So if you know your Bible history, there is some significant strife between Jacob and Esau, and some speculation about this is that the Amalekites were attempting to... um, win back the inheritance that they thought was rightly theirs. The inheritance that essentially is God's promises and the promise to redeem all of creation through a bloodline that the, uh, they, they said that's ours and we're going to come back and we're going to take it. In Deuteronomy, there's a, a, a description of what the Amalekites did. They showed up and they attacked the rear end of the Israelites, which was the women and the children. So not only did they show up um, attempting to reclaim an inheritance that they thought was theirs, but they did it in a relatively cowardly way, attacking the women and the children. So Moses tells Joshua to pick some men and go fight. And it's pretty interesting because Joshua is introduced for the very first time in the whole Exodus story. And Joshua's a pretty big deal. If you know, he obviously he takes over from Moses and leads Israel into the promised land. But it's pretty funny that he shows up like he's been there the entire time. And he's just like, oh, by the way, Joshua, go pick some people and go fight. And then suddenly Joshua's very first introduction is he's thrust into a battle. And so when we look at this, the situation for the Israelites is that they have been recently both sovereignly and spectacularly saved from slavery in Egypt based on no work that they've done. They just simply stood back and watched. And yet, they find themselves threatened with a new enemy that's attempting to derail and disrupt their achievement of the promises that God has for them, achieving their journey to the promised land. The Israelites are free. They did nothing to win their freedom, and yet they are then still called to fight. And so what is the principle for us this morning? The principle is this, is that we, you and I both know that the war, the promises that were made to the Israelites were seen through into fulfillment. They reached the promised land and ultimately through the lineage of these chosen people, Jesus shows up and saves humanity. We know that regardless of the fact that they ended up in a battle, that the enemies did not derail or disrupt God's promise. So we know that the war, the meta-narrative of this whole thing is that they won. 
But despite that, they still found themselves in a pretty significant battle. And so our first principle is this, is that even though the war, the war is won, but the battles still rage. Exactly like the Israelites, you and I, if we have put our hope and faith and trust in Jesus, we know that the war has been won. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and only by his sovereign work and his grace are we able to call ourselves adopted sons and daughters of God. But you and I both know that that doesn't mean that we, the battle stop for us, right? Anybody here, because of Jesus' work, you're, you're living the perfect life, sinless, you figured it all out? Anybody? We have a couple at our church, so we, I mean, you guys, that's one way you're falling behind us, but you know. I was getting worried there for a sec between the bread and stuff, but we're okay over there. Uh, right? Nobody, that doesn't mean that we are not faced with battles, right? There, and there's two types of battles that you and I will face, even though the war is won. The first is an internal battle. It's an internal battle between what Paul describes as the flesh and the spirit, living for the flesh or living for the spirit. And he says this in Galatians 5.16. He says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's an internal battle. Even Paul, this essentially outside of Jesus, the most formative person in all of Christendom, says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. This battle is real. There's also another battle. There's an external battle that's happening. We know that we are not fighting human beings, but we know that there is an external enemy, a very real and present spiritual enemy that is doing exactly what the Amalekites were trying to do to the Israelites, to derail and disrupt the promises that God has for us, and that is the enemy, the spiritual enemy, the devil. And in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, you probably know this, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We find ourselves in an internal and external battle against forces that are attempting to, we know that the, the war is won. They can't actually change our position with God, but what they want to do is the flesh and the devil, they want to make us question the promises that God has for us. They make us want to say, you know, is the war really won? Can you really rely on God, or do you need to do a little bit of extra work so he's more happy with it? Just God, I think God's mad at you because you did that thing that you know you did, or you didn't do the thing that you were supposed to do. We have enemies, and there's a battle. And even though the war is won, we find ourselves in the midst of a battle. So that's principle number one. Even though the war is won, the battles still rage. So if we head back to the Israelites, we find ourselves in verse 9. We can see the next part of this story. It goes on to say, Tomorrow, this is Moses speaking to Joshua, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Interestingly, another really stark contrast to what the Israelites are used to in their salvation and journey towards the promised land. Not only are they called to prepare for battle, but they are called to actually go and fight somebody. 
And if you know your Bible stories and Judges, there's a story in which God tells his people Gideon to prepare for battle, but eventually he prepares for battle. He picks people. He surrounds the enemy. But at the end of the day, Jesus or God sovereignly works where the enemy starts killing themselves, and they don't actually do any fighting. In this case, nope, prepare for battle and go fight. And this is the first time the Israelites have had to do this. And there was no declarative statement at the beginning of this saying, unlike in the Red Sea where Moses shows up, he says, stand firm, watch the Lord win this battle. No, he says, prepare for battle. you got to go win it yourself. Go fight. And so, you know, because Pastor David invited me here because of, whether he did or not, I don't know if he did or not, because I was a Marine and have some more fighting expertise, I have to probably stop here and pause and say, I don't think I can endorse the strategy that, that Moses came up with for this battle, okay? In my professional opinion, this is not a strategically or tactically sound plan. I want you to put yourself in Joshua's in their shoes and say, okay, or put yourself, I want you to take a picture of this. You think of all the Marines that you saw in that picture that I was leading, or th- and think of how we go about fighting a war is that I would gather, if we went to a battle like this, I would gather all my Marines around me and I would brief a pretty extensive and detailed plan. And I would probably have, I'd have my leadership, my, my squad leaders there. I'd have my, you know, my assistant um, platoon commander. I'd have the different attachments that they give me. They give me some artillery guys, some tanks, maybe some air people who control my helicopter and, and and, um, an air, and a fighter jet, like air rotary and fixed wind, if you want the technical term, yeah, assets that I can bring to bear in the, in the fight. And I would brief to them a very complex plan about how we're going to go about fighting. But I want you to picture me standing in front of them, and this is what the briefing sounds like. It's like, all right, everyone's here, good. Here's the plan. Y'all are going to go fight. I'm going to go up on that hill over there. <laughs> And I'm going to hold up my M4 on a radio. I'll have my hands up. You'll see me. I'll be over there, okay? All right, that's the plan. Go get, get to it, right? Anybody here would be filled with a, a, an incredible sense of confidence in my leadership abilities. Now, ironically, I would actually trust that my Marines would figure it out. If I, if I got an order like that, I'd be like, uh, okay. I mean, I would rather have a person who tells me that just let me make up my own plan, then actually make up their own plan. I'd be like, let me just figure it out, because if you're going to give me that advice, that's terrible advice. I can't trust you anyways. It would not be, it's not a tactically, strategically sound plan. But if you're in the Marine Corps, you would notice that not only, okay, the tactical strategic plan side apart, that's, that's one element. But if you were in the Marine Corps and you went through Marine Corps leadership training, you would realize that there's actually a more egregious error that I would be making in this situation. And it has to do with, that would really be the death knell to the credibility that I would have standing in front of them. And it's, this, and it's, a, it's a leadership principle called uh, the point of friction. What that simply means is that when you think of uh, a battle scene, you think of the complexity of it, and you're trying to do, you have a multiple different units you're trying to do, and, you, and the fact that you're fighting an enemy that's dynamic, they're not robots, you, they, they're, gonna, they're, they're acting and reacting, and so things are changing, right? The chaos of, the, of, of war is pretty significant. So the question is, where, do you, where does the leader put themselves to make the best decision, to help change the situation? Because, again, like you know, Mike Tyson, right? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. It's the same thing in the Marine Corps. You've got, you got a plan until someone starts shooting back at you. And so when things go a little bit differently than planned, where are you to make a decision to help change the, the, um, the, the battlefield? And they use this um, 
leadership philosophy called point of friction. And by the way, this is a good philosophy for parenting as well and for business leadership. Um, and it's the idea that you put yourself in the place where the most friction is occurring so that you can experience it and feel it and see it and make a decision based on the friction that's going on because you want to mitigate that friction and overcome it. And essentially, if I'm the leader, I want to feel it and I want to see what's going on and I want to be able to make some calls on the radio or make some decisions so that we can adjust and eventually overcome. And I will tell you that 99.9% .9 of the time, the point of friction in my, in my job was not on a hill over there looking at the battle. It was not me with the binoculars. There's no, like, Marine Corps leadership. It's like, okay, you get your binoculars and you stamp with your radio. And you're like, hey, how's it going down there? Sir, it's not going good. We're getting fired. Okay, well, uh, what do you need from me? Sir, we're getting shot. It's like, no, that's not the point of friction in a real war. The point of friction is near the front line where things are happening. But that's different than what we see in this story. And I think it's a pretty incredible juxtaposition to how we would think things would norm should go as opposed to the way that God does things. We see Moses identifies that the point of friction is not down on the front lines with Joshua. We see that Moses, who happens to be God's chosen representative, identifies the point of friction is up on the hill. And why is it up on the hill? Because the real point of friction is not in the actual swords and spears fight. It is a spiritual point of friction in which Moses, God's chosen representative, is appealing for God's divine intervention in the battle. There is only one Moses in the Israelite world. There's only one chosen rep. At this point in the story, there is no temple, there's no tabernacle, there's no priest, there's not even any law. So Moses is the sole representative for Israel to God. And he says the real point of friction in this battle, the place where it's going to be won or lost, is not on the front lines, it's up on the hill where I am appealing for God's divine intervention to save us and to overcome the enemy. And so the principle is this, even though the war is won, the battles still rage, both internally and externally, we're told to fight, but really, what does fighting mean? Fighting means that the way we fight, the point of friction is in our prayer approach to our battles. It's in the prayer, it's in the appealing to God's divine intervention to overcome the battles that are occurring in our lives. The point of friction in our battles is prayer. We can see this reinforced by Paul as he writes to the church in Ephesus. He gives a great description of six different pieces of the armor of God that we put on in this spiritual fight. But what does he end it with after he says, here's the six different areas, that you the six pieces that you put on? He concludes it by saying this. He says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Pray in the Spirit in alignment with what God has, in alignment with God's promises in all prayer and supplication. That's where the battle is won. But unlike Israel, you and I have a little bit different, right? We don't have to have a Moses. You don't need to bring all your prayer requests, whether for better or for good, through Pastor David. We, each of us, have unique access to God. We have unique access to appeal for his divine intervention in our internal and external battles. 
So we see, prepare for battle, go fight. The way we fight, the point of friction, the place where battles are won or lost is in prayer. So let's see how this ends up for the Israelites. Let's see how this story ends. I mean, sure, you probably already know, but let's go through it anyways. It goes on to say this. It says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So again, we have, a, we have a little bit different, but this is kind of where this story returns to the thread that we see all throughout Exodus and all throughout the whole biblical narrative. And that is the idea that not only, uh, the, even though the shift happens where they are being called to prepare for battle, they're being told to go fight, and they actually engage in combat, we still see that it is the Lord who brings the victory. At the end of the day, the Israelites cannot claim the victory for themselves. But in a little bit different, instead of them standing and seeing God work out the victory, we actually see the Israelites experience the victory of the Lord. Now, how many of you are sports fans in the room? We're our sports enthusiasts. I don't appreciate the fact that the person who did your announcements was wearing, on purpose, by the way, a jersey of a very rival soccer team that I loathe, okay? And I'm the kind of sports fan, and this might lose some credibility, I'm the kind of sports fan that I don't really pray for my team to win, I kind of pray for the other team to lose, if that makes any sense. Currently, his team is playing right now, and I may or may not be praying for season-ending injuries for all their entire team, okay? They get paid plenty. They'll be fine, okay? All right? But if you're a sports fan, right, how many, there's, a, there's a significant difference if your team ends up winning the Super Bowl or the national championship or something like that. There's a big difference between being a fan and winning that as opposed to actually being a player and winning a championship, right? I think a lot of times as fans, we probably think, no, I mean, I did it. My cheering did it, right? My yelling at the TV is what brought us over the line, which is okay, yeah, I mean, in some instances, right? But there's a pretty stark difference between watching someone achieve victory and saying, yeah, that was great, and experiencing it in the game yourself. And I think that's probably comparable to what the Israelites, they are experiencing God's victory through the Red Sea and the deliverance in Egypt, but there's a very different experience when they're in an actual battle and they experience that victory firsthand. And we see that the victory is the Lord's through a couple of key things, primarily through Joshua and Moses. Now, if you're like me, as you read through Exodus, does anybody get a little bit judgy with the Israelites? Like, there's a couple chapters between the Red Sea and this story, and they're like, hey, incredible Red Sea, let's sing a song. And then they're like, oh, we're so hungry. Moses, why did you bring us into the desert to die? It'd be better to be in Egypt, right? Then they're like, then God miraculously gives them food. Next chapter. Oh, why we're so thirsty. Why did you bring us into the desert to die? And he gives them water. You know, they're like, like, come on, guys, really? This is what we're doing? We're complaining, and I'm a little bit judgy, right? So, I tend to think that I would maybe be a little bit different, but I don't think so. (laughs) Maybe not. 
But in this story, we've got to give the Israelites a little bit of credit. Okay? In this story, there is no description of them being told to go fight a physical battle for the very first time in their history to go take up swords and shields and go fight someone. There's no description of them saying, really? You brought us into the desert to be killed by another group of people? What we actually see is two people represent the faith of Israel is pretty strong, represented in Joshua, who just shows up and is like, okay, go pick some people and go fight. And he's like, okay. So he goes and tells some other people, hey, we're going to go fight. Despite this ridiculous plan of Moses, we're still going to go do it, okay? So Joshua demonstrates, and Israel demonstrates, a, a level of pretty significant faith. Moses demonstrates a pretty significant level of faith where um, you can see, you know, there's no, there's no, like, God, there's no description of how God, or, like, shot it into his head or told him that here's what you're going to do. You're going to raise your hands. You're going to win. It's all going to be peachy keen. It's going to be wonderful, right? There's no description of that. In fact, there's a bit of a picture of the fact that Moses didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. Why? Because he had his hands up and things were going great and then the hands came down and things were going bad. Now, I don't know about you, but if, I, if Moses knew that when his hands were up, the Israelites were going to win and when they were down, that they were going to lose... Don't you think he'd put some things in place ahead of time to keep his hands up the entire time? And just think of yourself being Joshua. You're down there fighting. You're like, oh, this is going great. And then suddenly they're like getting beat back. Look, we look up at Moses. You're like, what's Moses doing? It's like he's just relaxing, right? Or think of Moses, and he's like this. He goes, ah, it's going great. Then he puts his hands down. He's like, wait a minute. What's going on down there? (laughs) Well, we're losing. And he goes like this, winning, losing, winning. Like how long does it take for him to figure that out, that that's the plan, right? So Moses shows up with a pretty incredible measure of faith in that he puts a plan out there and he says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what God told me to do. I don't ne- he doesn't necessarily know the extent and the details all the way through to the end. But we see that obviously the Lord is the one who gets the credit. And he gets the credit because despite the incredible faith of Joshua, he is unable to win the war on his own. Without Moses' hands raised, without the divine intervention, not only does Joshua not battle, he doesn't even battle to a standstill, he battles to a losing position. So even though he has incredible faith, the Israelites have incredible faith, they're not winning that battle on their own. And Moses, even though he has incredible faith to do a plan, he is too weak to hold his hands up the entire time. And so at the end of the day, the Israelites will recount this story, not in how incredibly brave Joshua and the Israelites were, not how incredibly strong Moses was, but in how incredibly weak they were and how incredibly strong Yahweh was to deliver them in the moment of need. Yet again, in this story, God's plan of redemption has little to do with the actions of his people and everything to do with his actions of his sovereign divine intervention. And so what is the principle for you and I? The principle is this, is that the power to win our battles is found in the object of our prayers, not the prayers themselves. I think a lot of times we put a lot of faith in our faith. Or, I mean, we're Pentecostals here, right? We're, we're Assemblies of God Church, so we like to pray a little louder. We like to pray in tongues. We like to maybe put a little bit of extra faith in the way we are praying as opposed to the object of those prayers. Is that not you? That's just, that's just what we do at North Central over there? Yeah. 
But in our case, we have the same object of the prayers as the Israelites did. We're still appealing to Yahweh, to the great I am, for his divine intervention. The significant difference for you and I is that we are not relying on one single person, one intermediary to appeal for his intervention. We, each and every one of us, has unique individual access to God the Father through the work of Jesus. We have a true and better intermediary in this battle, in this appeal. The object of our faith is the same, but we have a true and better intermediary. The Israelites had Moses, who was a doubting, ineloquent, reluctant murderer, who was merely a human, whose disobedience ultimately prevented him from seeing the promised land that God called him to. But in Jesus, we have a perfect, willing, obedient, faithful God-man whose obedience gives us access to the promised land of heaven. The Israelites had a Moses intermediary who brought them temporary victory for his people by having his hands held up by his friends. In Jesus, we see someone who brought eternal victory of the enemy for of humanity, the enemy of all humanity, by having his hands held up by the spikes of his enemies after being betrayed by his friends. In Jesus, we have a true and better Moses who went to the ultimate point of friction in the battle between humanity and God, and he won our souls back to himself. And he himself is now praying for us at the right hand of God. So God is calling us as the way he is calling us to Israel. He's saying the war is won, but prepare for battle, internal and external. He says go and fight, but how do we fight? We fight through our prayer life. And maybe you were wondering, well, what does it look like to fight in my prayer life as opposed to fight maybe in the way we would think that Joshua is fighting with swords and spears? Well, on the internal piece, if we're fighting that battle apart from relying on God's divine intervention, we're doing it on our own, it might look like a level of self-justification or a little bit of I can do it. Okay, God, this week, I'm not going to do this specific thing. Or I am going to do this. I'm going to pray every day for two hours. It's going to be great. I am going to not do this thing that I continue to do. It is not the way that God wants me to live. It might be a little bit of I can do it, and God's going to be happy with me. As opposed to Jesus has done it, I'm going to rest and live in that victory and respond appropriately. Maybe externally it shows up and say, well, instead of praying, I'm going to fight the enemy and say, well, well, who's at work? What's happening? Well, instead of praying, I'm going to go maybe change some other people's behavior because the enemy is really working in their life. Or, oh, I don't like, I mean, our country's falling apart and then the enemy is attacking us. I'm going to go advocate for a political person to change everything and to fix it all. It usually shows up in us if we're not prayerly, prayerfully Appealing for God's divine intervention, our war, our fighting usually ends up fighting other people and changing their behavior. So if we're not prayerful, it might show up as a little bit of self-reliance and self-righteousness or 
a little bit of self-reliance and self-righteousness in the way we approach other people and have them change their behavior because they are doing things they should not be doing. What does it look like for those of us who want to be at the point of friction, who realize that the battle is not, we can't win the battle on our own, we have to appeal to Yahweh for help? Well, there's four kind of groups of people that we might be able to identify with in this story that will help us give us some, some, some practical takeaways. Four groups of people that we might be able to relate with to say, how do I actually pray? Well, the first group are the Amalekites themselves. You might be in the room, you might be listening, you might be watching, you might consider yourself to have an adversarial relationship with God. You haven't yet put your hope or your faith or your trust in Jesus because you don't necessarily trust him enough to do it. You would find yourself working for your own kingdom or someone else's kingdom as opposed to God's kingdom. That might make you an adversary. If you find yourself in that camp, we want you to know that God doesn't treat you like an adversary the way that the Israelites treated the Amalekites. He welcomes you with open arms with an opportunity to speak to him, to talk to him, to bring your problems, bring your distrust to him. He's not insecure. He'd love to hear it and to bring their battles to him because the sword, the strike against the enemy has already been made to his son, Jesus. You might be an adversary, but you're not an enemy of God. Second is, you might find yourself, you might relate with Joshua, you might find yourself in the middle of a battle that you are either winning or losing or somewhere in between. And if you find yourself right in the middle of a battle and you're feeling it, either something going on internally or you're really feeling pressed down from the outside, there's a couple things that you can pray as you navigate, as we appeal for God's divine intervention. The first thing is pray that the Holy Spirit reminds you of the good news that the war is, in fact, won. You don't have to win it yourself. One of the things that I love about communion that we just did together is that at the end of the story, Moses, what they beat the Amalekites, and what do they do? They do two things. Write it down on a book and build an altar. Two things to remember the victory of the Lord. We just did that with communion. But pray that you are reminded of that daily. Pray, another thing if you're in the Joshua camp, pray for God's name to be glorified through your battle, not that you would come out being the hero of your own story. That's hard to do sometimes. And lastly, for, if you're in the Joshua camp, pray for God's intervention. Pray for help. Now, we believe that God's sovereign, that your battles are, a lot of times we find ourselves in battles that God wants us to be in because it's going to grow us more reliant and dependent upon Him, but also we can pray for help. He wants to help us. So maybe you're the Amalekites, maybe you're Joshua, maybe you're Moses. Maybe you find yourself in a position of leadership where you're bearing the weight of the responsibility of other people's battles. If you're a parent... You're probably feeling that. If you're a grandparent, if you are a business leader of any kind, whatever it is, if you're bearing the responsibility, and Pastor David didn't ask me to say this, but in pastoral ministry, 
the bearing the battles of everybody in your church or the people who are willing to have those conversations with you is not easy. So if you are in the Moses camp of you're feeling you're bearing the weight and the responsibility of other people's battles, here's a couple things that we can pray for. First, pray that the Holy Spirit reminds you that your identity is secure and it's not dependent upon your success or failure as a leader. Pray for wisdom, pray for direction, and pray for faith to walk a path that you don't necessarily see where it ends. And lastly, pray for help. There's two people, Aaron and her, who are the unsung heroes of this story. They show up and they help Moses achieve what he could never achieve on his own. If you notice the story, it is a full day of battle all the way to the end of the day. And if you're in a leader, pray for people to come alongside of you and open yourself up to help. That's one of the beautiful things about being in a church like this, full of people who are being transformed and shaped by the gospel, is that they can come alongside you, less about judging you for the ways you can't do it, and more about helping you achieve that victory. And then there's, like I said, there's a fourth group. There's the Aaron and the Her. Now, you might be in one of those three categories, but I think everybody can be in this last category of Aaron and Her. Every single one of us, I'm pretty convinced, knows someone who's in a battle. They might be adversaries of God. They might be far from Jesus, but you're near them. They might be in the midst of an internal or an external battle where you know what's going on, or you might be in their leadership role helping them bear the weight of that. All of us know people who are in these battles. And what does Aaron and her show up? And they say, how can we pray for these people? What can we do? Well, we can intercede for these people on their behalf. We can approach God on their behalf, appealing for all of the things we just already mentioned. Pray that they're a reminder of their identity of Jesus. Pray that he is glorified through the battle. Pray that people come alongside them as they are navigating these things. We can come alongside and intercede for the people that we know who are in the middle of a battle. What does that do? Ultimately, that reflects our Savior Jesus who is interceding for us. What is Jesus doing after he finishes ministry? What's the one thing he's doing? He's interceding on our behalf, a perfect model for how we can live as a church family and intercede for one another. And so regardless of what camp you find yourself in, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing a little song of victory that's going to remind our hearts of the fact that the, the, the war is won, even though we're in the midst of these battles. And we want you to pray some victory over your own life, even if you don't feel it. Sing it out and worship. And think about the people in your own lives around you who are going through these battles and pray for them and lift them up as a church family. So let's pray and then we'll sing this song together.